So today's sermon is about leprosy. Um, last week was on bodily discharges. This is about leprosy. Next week we'll have the Day of Atonement, so you get like a little bit of a normal sermon. Um, everything I know about leprosy I learned from Braveheart and Robert the Bruce, his dad, remember? His dad's face was falling apart. Um, that's basically all I know. No, so let's read these. Uh, I want. We're not going to read both chapters because they're long chapters. Um, but I would encourage you to go through and read those chapters on your own, or uh, read them after the fact. Pretend like you read them prior. That's okay. So let's um, read these first eight verses, and then we're going to kind of jump in. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, "Now, when a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot," and it turns into a case of leprous disease on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priests. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the diseased area appears to be deeper than the skin of his body, it is a case of leprous disease. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day. And if in his eyes the disease is checked and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day. And if the disease area has faded and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest. And the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, the priest shall announce him, pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. So um, let's set some baseline things here before we go any further, okay? First of all, this word here in the Hebrew, it's, we translate it as leprosy. Um, it's actually not leprosy the way you think of leprosy. You think of Robert the Bruce leprosy, you know, where your fingers fall off and those kinds of things. It can be that, but it's actually a broader term. And this is one of those things uh, with translation that's a little bit sketchy sometimes, and it's comes back to historical tradition and translation. And so the Greek word here in the Septuagint, which is, um, maybe you see the abbreviation LXX sometimes, that stands for the Septuagint, um, which makes no sense. Um, it's the Greek word lepra, and it means broadly skin disease, okay? It means broadly skin disease, but then they translate it as leprosy in the King James, and then it's kind of remained leprosy ever since. There's other words that are exactly like that, by the way, which are far more inflammatory. I'll tell you the top two. One is baptize, which doesn't mean baptize in the original language. It literally means to immerse. But when they were translating the Bible into English, they only sprinkled babies. And all of a sudden they realized, uh-oh, this word doesn't mean sprinkle babies. It means immerse. So it's safer to just transliterate it and make up a new word, baptize, which is what they did. And so the word baptize doesn't actually mean baptize. It means immerse or dip. They would use it to describe dipping clothes into a dye to change the color. Another word that's even far more controversial is the word church, which it doesn't mean that in the original language either. It means assembly or gathering. But um, church came from the German word kirka, 
and they decided to keep that and run with it, and it just became tradition, historical tradition and translation. It doesn't mean those things are wrong, but it does change the way that you tend to assign meaning to them. And so true leprosy is also referred to as Hansen's disease, and it's an infection that damages the nerve endings in your extremities, and as the nerve endings are damaged, the extremities become numb, and since they're numb, people are far more likely to damage them without realizing they're hurt. You know, maybe you've had like ankle surgery, and they give you all of the painkillers and the anesthesia, and they tell you, don't like, just get off your bed and start walking around because you won't feel it. Meanwhile, you're like giving yourself a compound fracture, you know, that kind of idea. That's what happens with Hansen's disease or true leprosy. A true leper can't feel his fingers, his feet, his toes. So when he stubs his toe, he bashes his foot, he hurts his hand, he has no idea. And then that can lead to amputation. So historically, leprosy is gnarly. It's been social implications are terrible. And there was no treatment prior to the 1940s, believe it or not, when they started using antibiotics with some success. Um, and so with leprosy, with true leprosy, with Hansen disease, the skin sores, they cause deformity. The extremities are considered infectious, though they actually think it's spread through the lungs, believe it or not. And because of all these reasons, the leper was isolated. Um, they were out from human contact. And that meant they were out from human love, out from human acceptance. And so I want you to know here the term, we see leprosy, but this term is far more general than just true leprosy. Though, of course, we see instances of true leprosy in the Bible. But this is a more broad, this is a broader term, which really is just skin disease, contagious skin diseases. The other thing I want you to know as a baseline here is um, the priest is not a doctor. Notice there's nothing here about treatment or what you should do. Like he's not telling you to make an oatmeal bath or any of those kinds of things. I mean, basically, the priest is concerned with something else. What is the priest concerned with? If you're going to say, out of the book of Leviticus, he's concerned with what? Ritual clean, cleanliness and uncleanness. He's convert, concerned with sacred space. And so the, the priest isn't concerned necessarily with how you got it or how it's going to be cured. The priest is concerned with the way that it impacts sacred space where God dwells. So the person thinks that they have leprosy of some form. The priest comes and checks them out. They quarantine for seven days, they take a COVID test, and the priest comes again. Still not better, they quarantine another seven days. All this happens while the person is pronounced unclean and they're placed outside of the camp. Okay, so why? Well, it just goes with everything else we've been talking about. So if you're visiting for the first time, this is kind of like merging at 60 miles an hour on to the highway here, but we've been talking about how God is holy, his people are called to be holy. If God is going to dwell in their midst, then his sacred space needs to be maintained pure and holy. And as it becomes infected, it needs to be washed with blood so God's presence can remain there. And so uh, the whole point is that leprous diseases aren't just bad for your health, but they also spread ritual impurity around the camp. And then it snowballs because I'm unclean and I walk near Doug and he pats me on the back and now Doug's unclean and he goes home and now Kashi's unclean and Chris is unclean. And before you know it, the unclean infection is spreading throughout the area, just like with all the other symptoms or circumstances we've been discussing um, in Leviticus. 
And so what we see is this truth, and this is an important thing as we jump to the New Covenant at the second part of the sermon. What we see is that leprosy has two realities. Leprosy has a seen reality, right? What the seen reality is what? It's the fact that like you, see, you have boils, you have eruptions. I don't know what that's like. It's just like, it's like infection squirting out of your arm. I don't know, okay? But you've got an eruption on your forearm, but then there's also an unseen reality, and the unseen reality is that you are unclean, right? That you are spiritually unclean. And if it weren't for the seen reality, nobody would know about the unseen reality. And so you see this seen and unseen um, kind of package deal here, and that's going to become crucial as we look at the new covenant. And so in the rest of chapter 13... Uh, which we're going to just touch on a couple verses, but we realize that Moses then continues to go through and talks about all the symptoms, right? So this, these first eight verses are kind of like the general verses about leprosy, and then Moses unpacks, well, what happens if it looks like this? What happens if there's like a little bald spot with some hair? What happens if the bald spot's got some red on it? What happens if I'm going bald, but there's no red spot? Well, you're clean. Don't worry about it. You're just getting old, you know, and these kinds of things. And so you go through um, chapter 13, and it almost reads like a little textbook. So you can go there as the priest, and you can say, all right, well, this guy's okay. I don't know what that is. Okay, you're unclean. You've got to stay for seven days. But verses 45 and 46 are where I want to pause on chapter 13. This is what we see in Leviticus 13, 45 and 46. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, let the hair of his head hang loose, so you're disheveled, and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, um, what's interesting about this is tearing their clothes, leaving their hair unkempt, covering their face, shouting unclean, these are all parts of mourning rituals. These are all part of mourning rituals. And so the question is, why? Like, why I'm unclean? Why do I have to wear the mourning garments as if my family just passed away? And this is, this is what's interesting, is they're wearing these mourning garments because they are essentially mourning their own spiritual death because they have been removed outside the camp. They've been cut off from the covenant community of the Israelites, which was essentially the same as being disowned, right? And so they're mourning the fact that they are like, you're dead to me, like that kind of idea. They're dead to their family as long as they're unclean. They're dead to the covenant people of Israel as long as they're unclean. They cannot access their community. They cannot access God. And so it's as if they were dead. Now, this is something we don't understand in our culture. We just don't. We don't understand it. Um, and, and I'll just give you a couple examples of why we don't understand it. Um, it's the same reason that we don't understand baptism and why baptism is important. You know, in the Muslim world, uh, for the most part, nobody cares if you're reading the Gospels. Uh, nobody cares. And, you know, we, we go on and we read Voice of the Martyrs and, and we assume that, like, if I'm reading the Bible, everybody's going to kill me. That's not the case. Um, it's very, you'll meet Muslims who read the Bible. You'll meet Muslims who read 
the Gospels called the Injil. And it's even okay to be a Muslim who also follows Jesus, a Muslim follower of Isa al-Masih. But when you get baptized, that's when it all breaks down. Because to get baptized is to consider yourself to die to one community, to re be reborn to another community. And so the, the, what we would say, like your social circles or your family, in the Muslim world, in the Arabic Muslim world, that's your ummah. And so when I become a follower of Jesus, but then I decide that it's time to actually fully obey Jesus, and I choose to get baptized, to my parents, my friends, it's that I have died to the Muslim ummah to be reborn to a new ummah. And what is the new ummah called? Can I say it out loud? The church, right? And so baptism signifies a rebirth. That's something that they understand. So now I want you to view this, because this is a lot closer to, you know, to Middle Eastern culture, modern Middle Eastern culture, than it is to our culture. And so the idea being that I'm unclean, and this is like I am dead to everyone I know. I'm dead to my family. I'm dead to my friends. Now, the reason we don't understand this is because if we get kicked out of our covenant church community, um, like let's pretend that I was, uh, like a, you guys found out I was a closet drug dealer. And the elders were like, Bill can't be selling drugs and being a pastor. And they approached me, and I'm like, it's good money. What's the deal? <laughs> like, daddy's got to get paid. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they're like, this is unacceptable. And they say, you're fired. Like, you're out. And they kick me out of the church. And then there's nothing to stop me from simply modifying my resume and going and taking a pastorate at any of the thousands of churches in the county, or the country, rather, that are desperate for pastors, right? And so this is our culture. Our culture is if you get kicked out of the church because you have some kind of blatant, unrepentant sin, like you're an unrepentant drug dealer, um, not like you just, you know, we don't like you, but you, you have this kind of blatant, unrepentant sin, uh, the perspective in our culture is uh, I'll just go somewhere else. It's not a big deal. I'll just go somewhere else. And so the threat of excommunication in modern United States holds zero power. It holds zero power. But for the Israelites, this was like being disowned. And so if they do not recover, they would be permanently cut off from the people of God. Access to the temple would be denied. Their life would be done as they know it. So this is serious. And that's why they would wear these mourning clothes. But if they're healed, there was a process by which they would be cleansed and they would be welcomed back into community. Are you guys following me so far? I don't actually sell drugs <laughs> that you know about. <laughs> All right. <laughs> in Leviticus 14, in Leviticus 14, what we see is there's a ritual process to restore fellowship. And so this is the idea that if you were unclean for a few weeks, but it was just an eruption, no big deal, and then you have a process of how do you get reinstated within the community. And so that's what we're reading in Leviticus 14, 1 to 9. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall go out of the camp and the priest shall look at him. Then, if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to, to take for him who is to be cleansed two live, clean birds 
and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds, and in an earthenware vessel over fresh water, he shall take the live bird to catch the blood. He shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, and he shall dip them and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Okay? I know, you guys love it. So this is what happens. I was a leper. And I, I call up the priest. I say, Steve, I think I'm healed. And Steve comes out of the camp, and he comes, and he looks at me, and he says, you know what, Bill? It looks like, it looks like you're doing pretty well. I see an improvement. And then we have two birds. We kill the one bird, and we catch its blood in an earthenware vessel that had fresh water in it. And then we take the other bird, and we dip that in the bloody water. Okay? That's where we're at so far. And then he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. And he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. So then from that, that blood water, I'm sprinkled seven times. Remember, seven always means completion, right? I'm sprinkled seven times. And then the bird is released. Litter Skinner plays free bird. And it goes, okay? And, and it says, he who is to be cleansed now washes his clothes shaves off all of his hair, bathes himself in water, and he shall be clean. And after that, he may come into the camp, but live outside his tent for seven days, okay? And so you, you're ritually cleansed with this blood and this bird and this bird that's released, okay? Some of you are already seeing the parallels to the new covenant. And then you're cleansed, right? You're washed, all those kinds of things. And then I'm allowed into the camp, but I have to stay outside my tent, as like a temporary process for seven days. On the seventh day, I shave off all the hair from my head, his beard, his eyebrows. He shaves, off <laughs> he shaves off all his hair, and then he shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water again, and he shall be clean. And if you keep reading in that chapter, then there's continual processes. So now I'm allowed to go into my tent, and then I'm allowed to draw near the tabernacle, and then I'm allowed to go into the tabernacle and have my final sacrifice of worship where I'm fully reinstated. And so this is what we see. We see a process of removal, and we see a process of what? Restoration. That's what we see in these passages, okay? So again, I said if someone thinks they've recovered, they call the priests. They kill the one bird, they let the other bird. The guy cleanses himself, he washes himself. And this is all about a ceremonial process to reintegrate into society. So the bird's blood, this is the ritual cleansing of the one bird, the bird being released. This is a visual image of being released from this disease and from this uncleanness. Um, the, the, the blood sprinkled, the person is being sacrificed, it's marking that they have been atoned. The shaving, the washing, all of this is a visual picture of cleansing. And so what we see in this process are parallels of atonement, which means satisfaction of, uh, of something that was owed, right, or the covering. We see freedom, right, and we see cleansing. And this, like I said, this passage continues to describe various sacrifices. On the eighth day, they go to the tent, they perform a ritual cleansing into the community, into the sacred space, and then they have full-on worship. Now, if you keep reading Leviticus 14, which we're not going to do now for the sake of time, um, what you see is then it goes through, well, what happens if there's like a leprous disease in your house? And so your house is made out of stones, and this stone looks like it's got some mold. 
And this, it's basically the same process. You got to bring the stone outside, and then you, you, you shut the house for seven days, and you see if the mold spread. If it, you got to bring out all the moldy stones. And then you go in, you see if it's spread. And if, it's, if it just keeps spreading, the house is declared desolate, and it's destroyed, and it's basically pulled outside the camp. Okay? Any questions on any of that? All right, if you have questions, then you should write them down and email us and text us and we can talk about it in our podcast, forthcoming. So what do we get out of this? This is what I want you to get out of this, okay? I don't want you to just understand Old Testament ritual, though that's important. Everything in the Old Testament points to the New Testament. And often what we see is the things that happen in the Old Testament become object lessons for a spiritual reality in the New. Not always, but often right? Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, that's a physical thing that looks to a spiritual reality of Jesus pulling us out of spiritual Egypt, you know, which is sin. And so we see some same things here. This is what I want you to get out of it. Three main things. One, leprosy is a perfect metaphor for sin. Leprosy is a perfect metaphor for sin. So when you go through and you reread these passages, I'm not suggesting an allegorical interpretation. I'm suggesting that leprosy becomes a metaphor for sin, which is the root of our uncleanness before God. In James 1, 13 to 15, we see this. No, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Okay, so where do my temptations come from? Well, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, and then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So remember that leprosy has a a seen and an unseen reality, and sin is very much the same. Sin starts as something that is quite invisible. It's an invisible infection within us. Um, Before we are followers of Christ, we have a sinful nature. That nature is then removed in regeneration, but we're still stuck in a body of death, right? Where with my mind and my inner man, I want to honor God, but my, my body wants to go crazy, right? And so sin starts as an invisible infection, but eventually and slowly it dominates one's life. So sin begins to spread in our lives, and if we don't root it out and kill it immediately, it eventually will take us over. Some of the things we see about sin, and I've, I've debated whether I should give like some clear, specific examples, um, but I decided not to because I want the Spirit to point out in your own mind how you've seen these things true in your life. When we don't eliminate sin in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit, What happens is sin makes us numb to the abundance of blessings we actually have, and we become dull and unfeeling, which leads to what? To more sin, because sin becomes almost like a dopamine rush where I want to feel something, okay? And if you don't, if you don't see this as true in your own life, let me put it another way, all sin is a gateway drug. Because sin requires more and more and more and more, and what gave you a rush a year ago is boring today, and so you need more of it, more of it, more of it. And so the sinful man only enjoys the rush when he gives into temptation, and then if he has the spirit within him, immediately is crushed by, by shame and enters into this vicious cycle. 
But if we continue to give into these things without repenting, we reap eventually what we have sown. Well, what do we typically reap? Sin isolates us from others because we begin to to cease to feel for other people the way that God has designed us to feel for them. And then this hinders friendships. This hinders relationships between husband and wife and children. It breaks fellowship with man, and ultimately it grieves the spirit and gives way to an unhealthy relationship with God. If we keep on feeding our sin and we keep embracing it without repentance, eventually we become so deformed and hideous that we are unrecognizable to the people around us. We become numb, just like a leper, and we no longer feel the pain that we inflict on ourselves and the pain we inflict on other people. You say, I don't understand how this is possible. If you need a basic example, look at any addiction, okay? An addiction might give you a case study on what this looks like, but it's not just addiction, it's any sin. And in the end, after hurting or destroying everything around us, we end up left alone with a love affair with our own sin, desperate by ourselves, worshiping our false God until it crushes us like a boulder and we lose everything we ever valued. That's what sin does. That's what happens when you love your sin. And so sin, like leprosy, has seen and unseen consequences. And what starts as an unseen infection eventually gives manifestation to very terrible seen realities. And this is why sin cannot be tolerated in our lives. That doesn't mean that we should be the sin police you know, waiting to see if anybody messes up and smacking them. But it does mean that as followers of Christ, we should be like combat medics trying to stop the hemorrhaging soldier so that we can help him get better, help him heal, so he can get back in the fight. In other words, when we, we, when we rescue someone from the clutches of sin, it's not because we're meanies. It's because we want to see someone restored. Which leads us to the second point is this. The Old Testament response to leprosy is a metaphor for church discipline. The Old Testament response to, church, to leprosy is a metaphor for church discipline. Notice in the Old Testament, as in church discipline, the process in Leviticus is about restoration and protection of the community. Those two things. This is about restoring the person if they can be restored, but in the meantime, protecting the community from infection. Church discipline is much the same. Jesus said a little leaven goes through the whole bunch, right? Um, Bad company corrupts good morals, right? You get a bad apple. You guys get it. Jesus didn't say the bad apple thing, but you get the point. 1 Corinthians 5 says this. It is actually reported, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, you know, which um, we shouldn't try to be like. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that isn't even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. So what made them arrogant? Well, in verse 6, we see that Paul says they boasted about this man's sin under the banner of grace. Oh, look how forgiving we are. Jesus forgave us. That's why we're just letting this guy go and do his thing. That's what they were boasting about. 
Paul continues in verse 3. He says, though I am absent in the body, I am very much present in spirit. And as present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. And when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with you with the power of Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That doesn't sound like modern society. But it's not just here, it's throughout the scriptures. Titus says, is there a divisive person among you? Warn them once and then kick them out. It's not just really crazy sin like this. Division, gossip, slander. Paul's advice is just like that of the Old Testament priests. He says, remove the man from the covenant community, until this sickness, this sin sickness is gone and dealt with, until he repents of his sin, and then he can be restored. See, destruction of the flesh here means the flesh, the sinful flesh, the carnality, the desire to sin. And so he's saying by removing this man from the covenant family of the church, by not by treating him as if he's a non-believer, then he will experience the consequence of unrepentant sin, which is in the Old Testament parallel, similar to being kicked outside the camp. The idea being that he will feel the loss of community which is what they were mourning in Leviticus 13, and then that will give him a deep desire to repent because he realizes that which he's lost. And when he repents, there will be a process for restoration so that he can be restored. But in the meantime, the church is protected. And that's, Paul explains more of that in 2 Corinthians because they were being a little too heavy-handed with the restoration and, and Paul says, look, the guy repented. Yeah, I got to let him back. Forgive him. Restore him. And so the goal is always, always restoration and protection. The goal is not putting someone in their place. The goal isn't proving who's right. The goal is restoration. I want to see you become more like Jesus. You want to see me become more like Jesus. We want everyone to become more like Jesus. That's the goal. See, we have a terrible, terrible, terrible misunderstanding about church discipline because we live in a culture where nobody tells me what to do. And so what is church discipline? It's loved ones helping one another out to become more like Jesus by lovingly pointing out unrepentant sin and blind spots. It's not me dragging someone up here in front of the church and being like, this person on February 11th. No. It's that if, I, if, I, if there's something that I know, let's go back to me being a drug dealer. If, if David catches me selling drugs, he comes to me one-on-one, -on -one and he's like, Bill, did that just happen? And I say, yeah, it happened. And he's like, you shouldn't do that. And I say, the money's good. And then he leaves, and he goes, Steve, you got to come talk to Bill with me. And then they come together and they talk to me. And if I continue to be resistant, then they would talk with me as all the elders. And if I continue to be resistant, then the elders would have to bring me before the church and they'd say, we let Bill go and this is why. Let's pray for him. All right, that's the process. It almost never gets there. I've never seen it get there personally. I think Steve has seen it one time. And I'll tell you the reason I've never seen it get that far. Because as soon as you try to lovingly call people out on their sin, you know what they do? Peace. Peace out. I'll go somewhere else. It's really sad because the goal is not to punish. The goal is maturity and restoration, which is the third thing. The Old Testament process for restoration is actually a picture of the gospel. 
the sacrifice, the bird that's released, the cleansing, all of this points to the gospel. You see, the sacrifice, this idea of atonement, that sin or uncleanliness demands payment, and so the bird is sacrificed. Well, just like Jesus was sacrificed, as we're going to see in the Day of Atonement next week, that Jesus gave himself once for all as a sacrifice to pay for my sins, to satisfy the cost, the debt that sin demands, because the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus paid that debt so that I could be forgiven. He pays the full penalty of wrath on my behalf. All of my unrepentant sin, all of my closet sins, all of my past, present, and future, Jesus publicly displayed them on the cross for all the world to see when he hung there and became a curse on my behalf. And his blood covers it. And so it's been atoned. But then there's also freedom. Just like that bird that got to fly away. There is freedom in Christ. There's freedom. I am not the one who was killed. I'm the one who was released. Jesus is the one who was killed. I'm then covered in his blood. And I am set free to be able to go and fly around and do my little birdie thing. Okay? Freedom from the eternal consequences of sin. Freedom from the shame of sin. That's the biblical doctrine of expiation, okay? Freedom to be restored into fellowship vertically with God and then horizontally with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that a good thing? And then there's cleansing, just like this cleansing, goes, shaves himself, wash himself. Just like Jesus said to Peter in John 13, he says, Peter, you've already had a bath. Now I just need to wash your feet. In Christ, our hearts are cleansed, prepared, and the Holy Spirit moves in. And the author of Hebrews says that now when we confess our sin, what is cleansed? Not our souls. He says our conscience is cleansed. We are reminded of the gospel reality so that we can move on with the restored relationship with God and our neighbor. In Christ, we are healed from the curse of sin. And that healing comes through forgiveness, but it's not simply about being let off for the bad things we've done. There's more to it than that. Forgiveness is associated with inner healing, interpersonal healing, vertical healing, horizontal healing, then going and being a healing force in the world around us because God is remaking and he's making all things new. That in the gospel, we receive this dynamic force of restoration and reconciliation, and then we carry that force of restoration and reconciliation into the world around us. That means that we are relationally restored to the Lord, we are relationally restored to one another, and we are relationally brought into a new family, the church. And this family is very special, and that's why we protect it. So this is what I want you to do this week. I want you to ask God to investigate your heart. Investigate your heart. You're not like saying like, oh, let me find some dirt on Frank. Oh, man. Investigate your heart. Ask God. Ask the Spirit of Christ to shine his light in your heart and reveal to you if there is any sinful, grievous way, any way of thinking, any issue of unbelief, anything that is endangering your spiritual health. And if he reveals it, you repent of it. That means you turn away from it. You say, God, I don't want this. 
and you ask the spirit to replace it with the holy opposite, right? Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, let him work hard so they can give generously. And then you walk forward in freedom. You walk forward in forgiveness because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set them free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son for sin in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin. He defeated it. He's already done the work. And now we just receive it. So we don't have to be intimidated or scared by these passages because God's already made the way for restoration. We just need to embrace it.